Oh my God, y'all, this conversation is lit. What a delight to talk to Ray McDaniel, they, them, a non-binary speaker, author, therapist, certified sex therapist, coach, and transgender diversity and inclusion educator in this week's episode of Let's Make Work Human. Ray helps audiences gain the sheer audacity to be themselves in the world through play, pleasure, and possibility. Heck yes to this. In this episode, we explore why it is critical that workplaces facilitate employees being able to not be distracted by gender identity and helping them move from their surviving to their thriving brain. We tackle how even the best of intentions fuels fear of doing it wrong and how since we only get one life, we might as well feel joy at work and in our lives. Here we go with Ray McDaniel. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people when we thrive at work instead of just survive everyone wins let's take a look at what it takes to make work human hello welcome ray and welcome back to the pod everybody Absolutely. Thank you, May. And thank you for being here as always, May. And Ray McDaniel, so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. And in the pod, you just, if you're listening right now, you just heard the formal bio of Ray. So I'm not going to repeat that. But what I do want to share is that I feel really privileged to have met Ray and also to have had a glimpse and a little bit of a preview into their book that's coming out uh, very soon, Gender Magic. It's incredible. And so I've been eagerly awaiting a public conversation with you on the pod because I think what you're offering in the world is so needed and so powerful. Thanks for being here. And I'm going to jump right into having me. Yeah. So Ray, we have in common a childhood memory. And when I got to read your book, it hooked me in right away, which is the story that you shared about your grandfather and horses. I feel like horses saved me as a kid and they probably still save me now. So I'm dying to ask if you get the chance anymore to muck about in the manure of horse land. I really wish I did. And I don't have much of an opportunity anymore. I live in Chicago, so there are not very many horse farms or things around me. There are some in the suburbs, but you really have to own a horse in in order to fully take advantage of them. The very slow trail rides with the children are not generally my cup of tea, but I will take any opportunity to get on a horse that I can get. I miss them. I love barns. I miss those. I do want a Stetson and boots though. There you go. There you got, that's half, half the game. And suffice it to say that the real reason behind this question was to invite you to Oregon because I have a horse. I'm very privileged right now in my life to have made a decision to actually own a horse again, which I haven't since I had my, one of my kids had a horse. And so you can come to Oregon, you can ride Callahan, and we can muck about in the barn to your heart's delight. 
I would be delighted. The podcast listeners can't see me right now, but I just audibly gasped in delight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will be there and muck about in your barn anytime. That sounds magical. So Ray has a new book almost out into the world. When is it's like, when is it's born day? When it's is born day? day is May 30th, which feels like tomorrow as Woo! we're recording this. It's so fast and it's available for pre-order now and pre-orders are great. So, so important. get on that. So important. Pre-order it. You're going to want to for sure. It for sure. They're really important, by the way, just for our listeners to know, because they help you get up on those rankings. And actually, thanks for the reminder, because I want to pre-order like 20 copies, because I got so many people I want to give this book to, for sure. Thank you. Yes, please buy many copies for all your friends and family and bosses. Awesome. <laughs> yes, and bosses. Let's talk a little bit about the twist and the plot of the book. The twist is that it is not about pain and suffering and the horrifying story that gets put upon the trans self-actualization narrative that is out there, I think. Ray, will you tell us instead what the book professes and says? And I don't really even think I want to word the, use the word dreams, but instead pushes to the front of the crowd. So I have a question. Yes, I absolutely love this question. So one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that I was pretty frustrated as a therapist working with clients and as a non-binary person myself, that it seems like the only literature and only narrative out there is that exploring and transitioning your gender is a slog through the mud. You will hate yourself. You will hate your body. You will be riddled with anxiety and self-doubt, and it's going to be terrible. Now, that story is not coming from nowhere. I have heard that story from many clients, but it is not the only story, and it is certainly not the whole story. What we see often is that there is such a focus, even in research, on the negative parts of gender transition and the hard things, mm -hmm. and those are important things to address, but what we don't see is all the trans folks, all the non-binary folks who are truly thriving and the research out there on coping that is helpful. What we weren't seeing out there was research that existed, but that wasn't being brought into the conversation about what does it mean to actively cope with hard things? What does it mean to move out of survival brain and into a thriving brain? What does it mean to be able to have uh, self-confidence in your decisions and have the support you need so that when the hard things happen, because they do, you don't, to facilitate our horse conversation here, you don't get knocked off the horse. Or if you do, you know how to get back on. So I wanted to write and do research around how can we as individuals and as a society help trans folks to truly thrive? What mindsets do we need? What skills do we need? And one of the biggest reasons for this is that focus literally changes the way that our brains process information. Mm -hmm. It connects to a different part of our brain when we understand the point of what we're doing, our why, which is to simply thrive as ourselves in the world. It's very simple. And that we understand 
what we are moving towards and the world that we want to create for ourselves and for everyone else to have the opportunity to explore and express their gender however they like. Woohoo! Pre-order the book, everybody. What else you need to hear? I was just thinking about the question and how you answered it, Ray. And I think it's such a, it's filling such a beautiful niche out there because I agree a hundred percent around the darkness of the story that's been told about queer questioning and transition. It reminds me a lot actually about what I hear in the recovery community, community with people who are mm-hmm. struggling with the disease of addiction, who find that like for people who don't know addiction deeply, it's a rest, it's the rest of your life of suffering. And what happens when we actually know, actually, it's called recovery for a reason. And how do I live with this illness or with, in this case, not an illness, but with this dimension of challenge that I have in my life in the world at large and actually have joy, have play, have high energy and possibility. And I just love that's the angle that you're taking with the book. Beautiful. Thank you. It feels important and it feels like it encapsulates the whole story of the fact that there are so many trans and non-binary folks out there that are thriving, that are living their best life, that have fulfilling relationships, fulfilling jobs. And that is possible. That is so possible. Yeah. And so critical, right, to our overall thriving in terms of what we see in the realm of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which is that it actually, we can, as a society, only move as fast as our slowest members. Like, so we've got to be able to have everybody be thriving. Now, I'm gonna, I want to go back a little bit because you said something very lightly just now when May asked you the question around being a therapist, and you didn't say that you're specifically a sex therapist. And I noticed, I didn't know that about you when I first met you. I knew the world in which you navigated, but I didn't know that was how you identified your professional career. And so I really want to ask, especially because I think our audience will be curious, is how did that decision occur or evolve to be not only a therapist, but specifically a sex therapist? And what stands out for you as the important headlines of that decision. And I get the bigger context here is about what you were just talking about probably, right? Yes, absolutely. So the bigger context is that my trans clients were always bringing up sex and relationships. In fact, all my clients were, and I wanted to be able to serve them better by having more information. But the fun highlights are, or I guess the highlights period is that it all starts with a strap-on. Kidding, but also not. I had a client who sat in front of me who was a transmasculine client who came in one day and said, I just used a strap-on for the first time, and I have never felt more at home and happy in my body. And they had tears in their eyes, and I just looked at them, and immediately my brain was like, I want all my clients to feel like that. How do I do that? And so I went back to school for a fairly intensive one-year program. The certification process for sex therapy is pretty intense in general. So two and a half years later, I am a sex therapist. The back backstory of that is that when I first started having sex, I had a pelvic pain condition and sex was really horrendous for me. It was very painful. And I was in rural South and I didn't know where to go. I felt very alone. I felt very broken. 
I wasn't getting any answers that I could find. Like Googling it wasn't really helping. I My therapist was helping. Finally found a doctor who kind of knew what he was doing. But none of those things was ideal. None of those things made me feel like I had agency over my body. None of those things were oriented towards pleasure at all. And luckily, the story is a happy ending. I had surgery. I went to a sex therapist. I went to a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I was able to feel good in my body when it came to, to pleasure, sex, and relationships. But that aloneness that I felt was one of the driving forces for wanting to help other people that struggled in this really important area. Mm-hmm. And also, it's fun, right? We go on field trips to sex toy stores. We watch porn as a class. Like It's in all the realms of psychology. It's not a bad job. I love it. <laughs> It reminds me of my friend of mine is she's retired now, but some of our podcast listeners know my friend Anne because she was who I went on my sabbatical with last year, which is our last episode of last year's podcast season was us reflecting on that sabbatical. But Anne was a labor delivery nurse and then was a nurse practitioner. And her area of specialty was female sexual dysfunction. And Mm -hmm. she got to go to all these conferences and she would call me up and she said, you would not believe what's out there in the sex toy market right now. Let me just tell you about this. And she got all these samples. They started offering them in her office for a while when they could get coverage from third-party reimbursement. But I was really struck with that dynamic of it and the fun part of it. And sex is a big part of all of our lives, as is intimacy and love. And I think in the world of work, which is what we talk about a lot in this podcast, we don't specifically talk about therapy, sex therapy, even sex overall, but we certainly are alluding to it. We are alluding to it when we talk about well-being in our workforce right? Because we know that our work, our workers and our employees and our colleagues are having sex of some kind with themselves or others. They're having intimacy experiences or losses. And it matters to how well they're doing, which right now, frankly, in the world of work is actually not very well. I agree with all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And so why is it, why is the well-being, including the sexual well-being of non-binary people, in your opinion, Ray, particularly important in the workplace today? First, because they're humans. And I am sure that anybody Mm -hmm. who is taking the time to listen to this podcast is invested in the well-being of the humans that you work with. They are part of your work community and they matter. The other thing is that if someone's brain is on gender, if it is full of gender dysphoria, if they are distracted and upset because their gender identity isn't being seen or respected at work, they are not going to be able to show up in the way that you want them to as employees. They're going to be distracted. Their well-being is going to suffer. They're going to be stuck in their heads versus if somebody is able to go to work and simply be seen and respected for who they are, then they show up differently. They're more creative, they're more focused, they're more invested in the work that they're doing when they feel seen and taken care of. And also just generally, it's in line with the values of the businesses that, again, folks who are listening to this podcast, I imagine are on the same tip as that, right? We want to value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging of all types. And transgender and non-binary 
belonging is a huge part of that. It is, and I'm struck with, and I'm curious, May, how you see this too, because we do represent different generations. As I listen to you talk, I'm even struck with the words that you use and the terms that you use. Like when you first said Mm -hmm. strap on, I was like, do I, is what I'm thinking a strap on is the same thing as what Ray's thinking a strap on is? And I think (laughs) that there is, I think in the world of work, I think there is, we get this a lot in diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. We get a lot of questions about language. What is the, what does being queer mean? What is trans? I don't understand cis. Somebody told me I'm cisgender. I don't know what that means. And I think that's a place of vulnerability for all of us at work if we don't even know what the words are, what they mean, and how to describe them in ways that feel empowering, not fearful. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think that a lot of people with good intentions get scared because they don't want to offend anybody. And so instead of leaning into that, they withdraw from the Mm -hmm. conversation. They withdraw from trying to learn the language and really connecting maybe with employees or coworkers who identify across the queer and trans spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a mistake. It does require a lot of vulnerability to own what you don't know and to do some extra learning on your own or in a group about what are some of these language upgrades that do create more of a sense of belonging and inclusion for folks. Because at the end of the day, language is always changing. I imagine if you had asked somebody seven, eight years ago, what does TikTok mean? They would probably say something to do with a clock of some kind. Not what we know of it today with the social media site. So language is constantly very naturally evolving, but within the queer and trans community, it does evolve really quickly. So it requires just a little bit more effort and a little bit more habit building Mm -hmm. because that is generally all it is when people get Mm -hmm. very uncomfortable with language is Mm -hmm. they just aren't in the habit of using new or different language. And that is a very solvable problem. Ray, I remember I just for everybody that's listening, I was in one of Ray's classes for my coach training, my life coach training, and it was wonderful. I don't know if you're still teaching or not, Ray, but I hope you are. And I do a lot of teaching. Oh, good. And there was specifically a group of uh, there was a section in your class around language. And to be honest, the part that really stuck for me was the doing it anyways. Like saying the thing, Mm -hmm. forging ahead, and that these are all my words, not race, but that essentially there can be a little bit in the beginning, which is I'm new here. Like I'm learning. I'm trying to figure this out. And that that actually softens the edges a little around like going into new waters with someone that you don't want to offend because taking the edge off in the beginning tells them that you care about them, but you're going to maybe mess it up. It also was just a good reminder that we've all been new at something before and it is unrealistic to think we will get it perfectly. So I'm so thankful for that. I watched my generation get caught in, in the, the booby traps of the language of using them, weaponizing them back at each other of not having Mm -hmm. it correct. So you must not know it all. And it's no, we can't, we can give grace. (laughs) Let's give grace and let's learn together on it. And I'm coming from a very cis hetero place. I have a lot to learn. And also let's not booby trap these words. Let's like 
let's be in it together and move as quickly as we possibly can into that learning. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And because you're talking about shame, about not using shame, Mm -hmm. even for people who get it wrong, because we know that shame is so destructive in, in all of our interactions around. If I feel unworthy because of the words I'm using, I'm not going to try to talk to you. And you named that paradox, I think, May, which is I also, I get some grace for getting it wrong and I need to be relentless with trying to learn. And what showed up for me as you were talking, Ray, about the words and the grace is that there's also an imperative that comes in this space that I know I've come up against myself, having a family member who prefers to use the pronouns they, them, having been an English major who identifies as a baby boomer. I have been fairly intractable about getting the language right about how they prefer it to be called. And it has been of a huge tension, some grace for sure, but also some frustration around, come on, mom, you're capable of changing. You're capable of changing. And when you change, I feel more seen. And I think this is a place of tenderness at work also, but also in families all the time, which is that it's an both, isn't it? It's a paradox. Yes, I need to have some grace. I'm learning. I have 60 years of referring to gender binary terms in terms of pronoun utilization. And I've got to be able to learn how to do it differently, even when it feels stressful, hard, or challenging. And I'm pleased to say I personally am making a lot of progress and I feel good about that, but it's been a long road. So if anyone out there is listening, like and feeling, oh, I don't know the terms, A, okay, we have grace for you. But even when I do know the terms, I sometimes don't do it. Yes, we have grace for you and keep your foot on the gas. Keep learning, keep trying to get it right because it matters to the connection. It really does. Absolutely. I completely agree with everything that y'all are saying. And I think what helps in those moments, if you're not getting it right, or someone has corrected you, is being able, like you're saying, to own, hey, I got that wrong without getting defensive, correcting it in the moment as much as possible, and then moving the conversation on. But on the back end, doing your own learning and practice. And if you're struggling with somebody's pronouns, yes, that's very understandable after X number of years knowing them as one set of pronouns, and then you need to switch. Or 60 years of not using they, them as a gender neutral singular pronoun. It does take a little bit of time to get your brain into those new neural pathways. And you can practice it by talking aloud in your car about them. You can talk to friends about them. You can journal about it. You can even do the old school like fifth grade crush thing where you write their name and their pronouns right next to it like 10 times in a journal. There are a lot of things that you can do to boost your ability to make those changes. But one of the most important ones is not getting into a shame spiral, which is going to make you withdraw again. It's the opposite of what we want in these connecting conversations. And it's going to make you defensive. And I'll use an example from my own life because I certainly don't get everything right all the time. I was talking to somebody who was probably in her 60s. And I can't remember the topic exactly, but I said something about teaching the youngins. And she looked at me, she's like, I've actually found that's ableist because there are a lot of young people who teach me things and a lot of people who are older who are much less knowledgeable about these things than I am. And I was like, shit, you are correct. And my response was basically that. I'm like, 
good point. You're 100% right. I take it back. Mm. And then I moved on with my night and I didn't think about it a lot, except with, I'm not going to say that again. And I had a moment of learning. And that was really valuable to me and not something that I needed to go into a shame spiral about. We hope that you are enjoying listening to Let's Make Work Human with Ray McDaniel. Every one of us can make a difference in building workplaces that bring out our best. If you agree and want support for how you can contribute, head on over to our website, www.momentum.com, that's M-O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M, or mocarrick.com to join our weekly show-up newsletter, chock full of inspiration, tips, and tools just for you. And if you're curious about Ray's message about creating belonging for all genders at work and want to help your company be one where everyone feels seen and valued, you might enjoy coming to our monthly roundtable conversations on LinkedIn, where we invariably discuss inclusion as a central part of a healthy and brave workplace culture. Or if you want to learn more, email us at info at and we'll talk. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Not getting caught off guard and then being like, oh no, I've done it wrong. And instead thinking about, okay, I'm just, I'm learning right now in this very moment. So there's one thing you said, so many things that you say in the book, Ray, that are just so valuable, but there's this one thing that really struck me in terms of what I'm in right now, which is rewrite of my second book. I'm deep into the research right now about the workforce at large, workplaces at large, as I get ready to reissue Brave Space Workplace under a different title with the benefit of this new research. And one of the things you say in Gender Magic is that you reference the underemployment of trans people in particular throughout the world, which really struck me because it is my lived experience as well in terms of what I've seen in our client groups. What is happening here and what scares you about it? Like, Talk to us about the broader issue of trans identifying people being underemployed today. The easiest and simplest answer is discrimination, plain and simple. A lot of trans people get to the in-person or Zoom interview portion and they don't get hired over a cisgender person, which if you're wondering, cisgender is just not trans. So that is the easiest explanation is we live in a transphobic society and or people might have unconscious biases against trans folks, especially in customer-facing roles, and don't hire them. There's also this domino effect of socioeconomic disempowerment for trans folks. Mm -hmm. A lot of trans youth are not supported by their families, which means that they don't have as much money for college. They don't have the resources to take unpaid internships. There are opportunities that are not afforded to them. And you add on top of that any sort of intersectional identities, you know, black and brown folks, disability, and there, there is this domino effect. Like I'm saying, this causes worse mental health, with, which then makes it difficult to focus at a job. Inability to get physical needs met without the funds or without the insurance. So it is... It is a problem that is indicative of a much, much larger societal problem. And it scares me because this is a cycle. Mm -hmm. Trans people don't get hired. They're underemployed. Their mental health worsens. We see these higher rates of suicide and anxiety, depression, things like that. 
the loss there, number one, I think is fairly obvious, but trans people add so much to a workspace. A lot of the trans people I know are wildly creative. And I think some of that is because we have had to step out of the box and these other areas of our life. And it changes how your brain thinks about things. Um, I think a lot of what we might be seeing with underemployment is also employee, trans employees or non-binary employees that are not meeting their full potential at work because like we were talking about earlier, they don't feel fully seen or supported in their job. So they withdraw or they're distracted or they call off more often. Those are some of the broad sweeps that I'm seeing. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I'm struck with the systemic nature of the microaggressions and the intersectionality that flows. It's a lot like right now, there's a lot of attention going on the wage, the, the persistent wage gap for men and women. And I think that it's very similar in terms of we, we see women not asking for their initial starting wage at the same rate, and then it just spirals. So some, someone who's 18 and gets kicked out of the house because they're trans, and then they are now homeless. And mm-hmm. how do they find a job or temporary houseless? How do they find a job from that space? And then that begins to set off a whole trajectory of other serious problems that contribute to that underemployment. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. I was thinking about what you're seeing right now, Ray, because this is something I think that May and I talk and think a lot about, which is in the world of work, if we think about the world of work being like a giant stormy ocean right now with so many squalls, in the realm of gender diversity and equity, what do you see the successful boats doing? Are you seeing organizations that are still like that are actually floating and maybe even sailing in good ways? And what are you noticing about the sinking boats in this particular space around gender identity and equity? I love the analogies that we're using around horses and boats. <laughs> These are great. I'm into we it. Always analogies. <laughs> I love it. The first and most obvious thing is to hire trans folks. And within that is a lot of work that needs to be done beforehand in order to provide a safe space for trans folks that you do hire or to even get them to apply. So making it clear in your non-discrimination policy and company values that you value gender diversity, making sure that your marketing materials don't just reflect cisgender people, if possible, making your commitment to queer and trans equity apparent on not just Pride Month, but all year, having doing the work as a leadership team to train people on language, to train people on how to support a trans person who might be transitioning and have some company policies around how to make that as seamless as possible. In this realm, the boats that are sailing, the basics go a really long way. Mm -hmm. So making it easy to change names and pronouns and emails in whatever backend system that you have, simply having someone's name and pronouns and identity respected by everyone at work, having a bathroom that is accessible and that it's clear that people who identify with that gender or close to it are able to use. That's a huge thing. 
not making the trans person go down three floors into the basement to to go to the bathroom is helpful. Things that are very simple but profound when it comes to welcoming trans and non-binary folks into the workforce, dress codes that are about clothing and not body specific, making sure that you have insurance that covers gender affirming surgeries, having parental leave that is not Mm -hmm. just about a birthing parent leave, creating a company culture where you use gender neutral language as much as possible. We don't need to be addressing people as ladies and gentlemen when you can address them as team or everybody. It's very simple. I would also say creating a culture that celebrates gender diversity are the ships that are really just zooming out when it comes to sailing, which can be as simple as the response to someone coming out as trans being congratulations. Thanks for sharing more of who you are. What can we do to support you and make whatever this journey looks like for you a little bit easier? And making that clear, again, on on more than just Pride Month. One of the most valuable things I've seen is having an HR department that has a plan or an options for a plan in place to help someone's gender transition go a lot easier. So doing as much of the heavy lifting as they can on informing relevant parties, shielding the employee from inappropriate questions, being thoughtful about announcements. Does this really need to go out to the whole company? Is it Does it just need to go to the team and then have this person change their email and their Zoom signature? Mm-hmm. And then having training for everyone who is there. So I used to work at an office downtown in a skyscraper and our office was obviously very affirming, but the bathrooms were outside of the office. And at the time we only had male and female bathrooms and there was a janitor who was working outside changing a light or something. And I went to walk into the men's bathroom mainly because it wasn't full. Um, And he was like, oh, you're, that's the wrong one. And I had to speak with the building management to be like, hey, I need your janitors to respect the right, especially in Chicago, which is the law of people to go into whatever bathrooms that they feel comfortable going into. And those little things make a huge difference in the ships that are sailing. For the ones that are more on the sinking side, I would say getting very annoyed at people who are changing names or pronouns, acting like it's a huge burden on the company rather than something to to celebrate, making those logistical changes very difficult. So emails, names and systems, things like that. Any sort of highly gendered expectations and that it is going to change and be very specific to different workplaces or different industries but it is definitely worth paying attention to. And then not having a clear plan or being supportive if an employee comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to need to change the way I show up at work and my names and my pronouns. And obviously the people who are not hiring trans folks are not making an effort to make it clear that trans folks are welcome. Yeah, beautiful. Those are all such really good examples. And it makes me think about what I don't have to think about as someone who is cisgender, for example, 
is this the right restroom for me? Mm -hmm. Just not having to ever have to question whether there will be one for me. And so the, those ideas that you're offering are so beautifully concrete around the kinds of things an employer might be doing or not doing that's going to that's gonna really invite the community that is different into their realm, which is what employers ask us all the time. What should I do? But if they mm -hmm. become committed, they then want to know what should I do? And these are what you've been saying are some really good examples. Thank, Thank you. you. It feels clear to me, but can we just like connect, can we fully connect the dots of when people feel seen and known for who they are and can show up as their full selves and go to work, then the doors are more open to joy. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there is a business case for people feeling joy. Let's do that. So I just want to, it doesn't all have to be all doom and gloom, which is how we started this conversation and that actually there is a business case for people feeling joy and thriving at work, which Mo and I are just always preaching. And that the first steps of people being able to do that are to breathe fully <laughs> into who they yes. are. And that allowance of breath is not all their job. Like I think yep. that is the other bit. I think there's some that people just do it. Just be who you are at work. It'd be fine. We love everybody. It's like, no. There are actually, there's jobs here that need to get done in order for the joy windows to open. I just love it. I'm just over here clapping silently. <laughs> I just feel like sometimes joy can be seen as such a fluffy thing. We just had a conversation with Eleanor Beaton about joy and work, and it can quickly be shoved into the, oh, that's so nice box. Mm -hmm. Isn't it nice that they feel joy there? It's probably because yeah. they have great sweatshirts. No. That's <laughs> not what it is. Like there's other stuff like not getting – and Mo, the thing you just brought up about which bathroom is for me and then that layer underneath that is that the bathroom that that stranger thinks is for me, which is no, mm -hmm. let's remove all those barriers. <laughs> Neither one of those are necessary. Yeah, and I think what you're saying, and it's so powerful, and I think about this for you as a young parent – right, who I know is being very mindful of how you're talking with Crosley about gender and gender identity. And, and I think that it's, yes, having the right bathroom, that's a thing, but that I would put that in the maintenance category, right? Yeah. When we talk about joy, we're actually talking about enlivening. We're talking about celebrating. We're talking about like pleasure and energy and like radical enthusiasm for what you're doing, which as an employer, myself, as a CEO of my company and what I see with my clients, that's actually what they want. They want the employees that are coming to work every day so excited to do the work that's at hand because it matters to them, because they feel seen, because they can make a difference. And also because it brings them some dimension of joy or satisfaction or contribution. That's what we want. So to me, that what you're asking is so powerful. And I think about little Crosley, who's three, and I think, okay, 20 years from now, what do we want for Cros, right? Mm -hmm. What do we want? We want her to be able to wake up on a Monday morning or whatever day she goes to work and be like, I can't wait to get with those people because they get me and they're going to, and I get to do hard shit and do it well in the context of this. Not that every day is going to be joyous, but if she's, as you said, Ray, so powerfully, if, if Cros is hung up on being preoccupied with gender, with feeling unseen for the pronouns that they're choosing to use, then they're not, they're going to be suppressed in what it is they're bringing. And we don't have to go, of course, as far away as 20 years. We know it's happening right now today for many of our employees. And it starts now so that Cross can do it in 20 years. So Absolutely. it seems normal. 
And that it's just dawning on me now. Wouldn't it be interesting if maintenance decisions came from the lens of that it gives more joy to people to get these maintenance things correct? And that so often is not happening. Okay, maybe everything. What if we just funneled it all towards like joy from every department? What can finance do? Right? What can maintenance do? I think that would be a really fun thought experiment and might make things a lot easier to choose. I don't know. That's just me brainstorming on the pod, y'all. Just workshop in here. Ray, I've got a question about what it felt like to, this is not necessarily a work question, but one of the things that I also heard is a slog is writing a book. Um, (laughs) I've heard, I've watched, I've heard this. It looks very difficult, but I'm wondering what it feels like to not only write a book about joy, but to write a book that's about a narrative that a lot of people want to push against. What did it feel like to push against a narrative? It's such a good question. And yes, you're right. Writing a book is no joke. I always assumed, oh, it would be hard to write a book. I didn't know. (laughs) I did not understand. It is very difficult. And I feel very proud to be on the other side of it. I am so passionate about this message and so believe in how impactful it can be, not only for individuals, but for our society, that everything I heard about the opposite narrative or all the hate that is coming towards trans people these days and all the legislation that is coming our way, everything I heard in that realm just made the book feel so much more important to me. Mm -hmm. And because I believe so strongly in the message of the book, I know the research is sound. I know my personal experience. I know what I have seen work with my clients. There is very little that people can say that is going to really shake me about Mm -hmm. how much I believe this book and the power of this message. And that I believe this is truly the way forward to a world and to a workforce that does center joy. Mm. Okay. Okay. I love that. I love that answer. And will you connect it to the one person who is out there listening, who doesn't feel seen and known and believes the same thing as you, but has to do the brave thing of being the only one right now to push back against a narrative, whether it's just not being seen and not known. You give them like, the little pep talk that you gave yourself while you were writing that book, what's the thing that you were constantly telling yourself? Like you named one of the core things, which is this is worth it. You get exactly one life. You get one body. You might as well live your life as the most lit up, authentic version of yourself. That, wherever that leads and however hard that road is, I will always, at my core, believe that is worth it. Hmm. I think the other thing I would tell them is that no matter how alone you feel, you are not alone. There are people out there that are accessible, that can find either in person or online that will support you and see you right now for who you are, regardless of if or when you make any sort of changes to your physical body. That love and acceptance that you're seeking is available. And it's also available at work. There are employers who prioritize people feeling safe in this way. And I think that's incredibly powerful. 
I love that. I also love the you might as well. Yes. Two two last questions. One is who's Mm -hmm. inspiring you right now? It doesn't have to be work related, but something that's making you feel all fuzzy inside. And then the next one is how can our listeners support your work? Excellent. So many things are inspiring me lately. So I'm going to give you a weird one that I think is funny. I'm inspired by nature a lot and am in awe of nature. And I saw this post on Instagram the other day of an octopus that was riding a jellyfish to get around, <laughs> which is silly, but it it just inspired me because nature is wild and so creative and so imaginative of ways to exist in this world. Mm -hmm. And I just want to cheer on that octopus writing the jellyfish and just need more of that content in my life. (laughs) Uh, How can people find me and support me? My Instagram is a hub. So I invite you to follow me there at the Ray McDaniel. That's Ray R-A-E. So give me a follow. There are links there to pre-order my book. You can sign up for my newsletter. In particular, if you're interested in supporting the book, you can sign up for the book team newsletter on there. Obviously, buy my book. It is available everywhere that you can buy books for the most part called Gender Magic. And once you get it, Share it with your friends, share it with your boss and your coworker and your family. Have conversations about the content in that book because I truly believe that gender magic and the lessons in there have the potential to change how we see the world in a very profound way. And other ways that you can support me is to hire me to speak to your organization. If they need any sort of support around gender diversity, gender equity, inclusion, and belonging, or your LGBTQ group just needs a pump up, I'm the person. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you know what's so interesting about that last piece about speaking to your group is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is that we've seen this interesting trend in the in terms of what gets what, what gets attention around DEI. And I'm sure you've seen some of the stats that LGBTQ plus issues in the world of work have actually had more progress with people's fluency and comfort talking about the community of LGBTQ plus than we have seen with race. So yeah. people's discomfort with talking about being white or those kinds of things actually is actually fallen behind. And yet the progress is still so very slow. And I think what you're representing in the trans community, it represents that kind of leading edge of where some of the hardest to talk about issues are. And and before we close, I wanted to ask you something that did not make it to our list of questions, but I'm going to ask it as a post edit and to keep it in in the recording because it's really interesting. And it also is, again, not to be narcissistic, but it's top of mind for me because I've decided to change the title of my book. The title of my book, the first edition, was Brave Space Workplace. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you know where that term brave space came from. Not exactly. Like I can't point to a resource, but I do know that it is used quite a lot and maybe did originate in the LGBTQ community. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I want. That's yeah, good job. And I was really curious about that because in Brave Space, which we still use the term Brave Space Workplace, we're just switching up the title a little bit, but I talk about 
the social justice and education leaders, and I'm actually re- looking at the names right now because I want to make sure I got it right, Brian Aro, Chrissy Clemens, Diana Ali, and et al., who first were the ones who coined the term Brave Space, and it was very sp- specific to an alter- being an alternative to say safe spaces on college campuses around freedom of expression, particularly around gender and gender identity. And I love, I just wanted to like circle and remind even myself of that and the origin of that word, because we are seeing the word come up more often. For me, it's a stronger word than safe space, because I don't think we can guarantee safety because of what you said, which is that it takes vulnerability, it takes courage to create the kind of environment where people can see, be seen fully as they are in this dimension, as well as many others. And I just love to, to be able to remember, I don't want to forget the attribution of where that word came from in those communities. So thanks for taking a trip down memory lane for me with that. I love that. And yes, I agree. You cannot guarantee a safe space. And in order to create more safety, you have to be willing to get vulnerable and to be brave. To speak to your point about DEI around race kind of falling behind, and I'm going to say popularity, I don't know if that's the right term, with folks who are hiring DEI professionals, these conversations are hard conversations or can be, and all of those skills are transferable. So the more that we're able to create brave spaces in one area, the more we are building capacity to have those brave conversations and hard conversations around things like race or around Mm -hmm. disability. Yeah, I love that. I love that. We get better at it in an area that's maybe more adjacent to our life or our work, and then we can apply it in the areas that are less adjacent as we're stretching and growing and meeting people that are even more different than we are. So that's a beautiful Mm -hmm. point around the skill building that happens when we get better at leaning into these conversations and not avoiding them. Oh my gosh, we could keep talking for a long time. And (laughs) and unfortunately, we do have to end the podcast. But thank you, Ray, so much for being here with us. And thank you, Maeve, also for your wisdom and thinking on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. 